First and foremost, I would like to formally apologize to the families of Renee Jackson, Brandon O'Neill, and Adrian Carter. I did not know them well, but they seemed like very smart, young individuals with bright futures ahead of them. What happened was entirely my fault, and I would do anything for the opportunity to go back and make things right. The word sorry doesn't even begin to describe how I feel. The guilt is tearing me apart, but I will endure it for the short time that I have left in this world. I hope that you will find it in your hearts to forgive me, though I will not blame you if you spit on my grave for the rest of your days. I work as a medical examiner at a county hospital, mostly handling autopsies of John and Jane Doe's that come in at night. Since I work the late shift, it's not uncommon for me to spend hours alone in the morgue. It can get a little lonely and boring at times. Fortunately, I work at a teaching hospital where we regularly welcome bright-eyed residents ready to take the medical world by storm. They expect to be hazed by their attending doctors and nurses, but not by someone outside of their inner circle, which is exactly why they get sent my way. The attendings watch and hide as I scare the unsuspecting doctors-to-be. We typically have a good laugh about it afterward. No harm done. Last week, however, something went terribly wrong. I was about to start an examination when Dr. Chang phoned me to let me know that three new residents were coming my way. He typically gave me more notice, but I could manage something despite not having my usual prep time. Three eager residents showed up before I even hung up the phone. They told me Dr. Chang had sent them to retrieve a ring of a grieving widow. Classic excuse to justify a trip to the hospital more. I rested one hand against John Doe 9018A's chest and waved the trio over with the other. Using the gloved hand that had touched the corpse moments prior, I introduced myself and offered them a handshake. I could see them cringe, but they were too polite to refuse. I stalled Miss Jackson, Mr. O'Neill, and Mr. Carter with chit-chat while their attending doctors got into position. Once I could see the tops of their heads peeking from the hallway, I knew it was time to get the show on the road. I promised I'd retrieve the missing ring as soon as I finished with John Doe 9018A's autopsy. Waiting for the students to consider their options, I assembled my tools. I knew one of them was going to offer to help. Young doctors are notorious for taking advantage of any opportunity to get their hands dirty and to show off. It was Miss Jackson who did as expected and proposed they assist me. I played dumb. Pretended that I was surprised and very relieved to get their help and motioned toward the box of latex gloves on the counter. In order to keep the students from getting suspicious, I began with simple and normal request, handing me my scalpel, removing the corpse's shoes and socks, and filling out part of a mandatory autopsy form. All the while, I performed Y incision on the man's chest to get his organs. The fun part happened once I felt the students were sufficiently comfortable with my authority. 
and was going to convince them they'd be hearing a dead man's final breath. At first, everything went off as it normally would. I explained that I was going to remove oxygen from John Doe's lungs by pressing on them, and that if they listened carefully, they could hear it as it made its way up his throat and out of his mouth. I didn't put any pressure on them to do so, mind you. It had to be voluntary. I'm not the monster, after all. To my great delight, they all enthusiastically agreed to listen near the corpse's head, which I would use to send out a gust of air toward the intended victims. It usually startled the living daylights out of them. This time, however, I didn't have the luxury of properly setting up the prank, so I decided I'd go with a cheap Boo jump scare instead. The result would likely be the same. Come closer, I requested, pointing to my patient's face. Once the students were in position, I asked Mr. O'Neill to open John Doe's mouth. He hesitantly placed his hands on the wrinkly old man's face, pulling his lower jaw down to reveal a nasty set of rotten black teeth. Mr. Carter gagged at the sight, but the other two kept their cool. I must say, I was impressed by how well they kept their composure throughout the examination. Stifling a laugh, I reached a hand inside the corpse's chest in preparation. The smell emanating from John Doe's mouth was far from pleasant, but it wasn't anything I wasn't used to. Now, we were all in place. The residents were crouched with their faces inches from the man's, and mine was about a foot farther away. Okay, listen carefully, I said calmly, squeezing the exposed lung. A heavy puff of air unexpectedly escaped the man's bluish lips. It was foggy like a winter's breath. The four of us gasped in shock, inadvertently inhaling the fumes. I could feel the sickeningly moist and cold air fingering its way down my throat and into my lungs, leaving the taste of rotten eggs on my tongue. Wiping my mouth, I retracted and gagged in disgust. The attending doctors laughed and clapped behind the glass separator. They had no idea our little prank had gone awry. Freaked out students looked nauseous, coughing repeatedly as they turned toward the hallway full of doctors. When they realized they'd been hazed, they calmed down. Not wanting to lose face in front of my colleagues, I regained my composure, forced a chuckle, and claimed I'd used dry ice to manage the effect. The doctors and students never suspected a thing, but I knew the truth. We'd stolen a dead man's final breath. I nervously finished the autopsy, the disgusting taste lingering in my mouth. Aside from the puff of cold air that had escaped the man's lips, there was nothing out of the ordinary with my patient, yet there was something about him that put me on edge. Unfortunately, my childish actions had already sealed our fates, and things were about to take a drastic turn for the worst. My alarm went off waking me for the first time in years and leaving me in a momentary daze. 
Usually I was up a dozen minutes ahead of time. I sat in bed, running my hand over my sore neck. My throat ached as though I was coming down with the flu, yet the rest of my body was perfectly fine. Although I'd brushed my teeth thoroughly several times since the incident in the morgue, I could still make out the aftertaste of rot in the back of my throat. Subtle flavor was enough to convince me to use the god-awful mouthwash I'd purchased a few months ago. The powerful, alcohol-imbued liquid stung my mouth, but succeeded in diminishing the unpleasant taste. I drove to work, picking up a cup of coffee along the way. The unpleasant egg-like taste made drinking it almost unbearable, but I needed the caffeine to wake me up. As the rest of the world prepared for a pleasant evening at home, I had mountains of paperwork and several autopsies to look forward to. The beauty of working the night shift was that I rarely got interrupted when I needed to focus. When I arrived at the morgue, my fellow medical examiner gave me a helpful status update and left me to my own devices. There was a body waiting for examination in cooling unit 5. According to my colleague's notes, an invasive autopsy would not be necessary. I opened the cooler, slid the body out, placed it on a gurney, and brought it under the bright neon light for proper examination. There was an annoying hissing noise in the room, so I turned on the radio and took a seat on a rolling chair in front of my patient. When you see one corpse, you've seen them all. It's hard to be shocked by what lies inside the body bag. That said, when I saw her frozen and pale face, I felt a slight twinge in my chest. You never expect to see someone you know come across your table. And yet, there she was. The young lady I'd pranked the night before. Her skin had taken on a blue sheen. Bruising around her neck revealed that she'd suffocated. The markings were not indicative of human hands, so I checked her file for an explanation. Apparently, Miss Renee Jackson's scarf had gotten stuck in a rotating door. A group of good Samaritans tried to help, but as they pulled the door, the scarf tightened around her neck. By the time they got the poor woman free, she was gone. doesn't matter how long you work in the business. The loss of life always leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. No, not like the taste of rotten eggs from a homeless man's final breath. A metaphorical bad taste. I certainly felt bad for the young lady, but at that moment, I had no idea her death was my fault. It just seemed like an unfortunate accident. When I slipped her back into her cooling unit for pickup by the funeral home, I made a conscious effort to erase her from my thoughts and moved to the next corpse on the list. Later, as I was filing paperwork, the radio started playing god-awful pop music, so I turned it off to keep my ears from melting. My throat was still quite sore, and no amount of water could moisten the walls of my esophagus. I was just about to leave and get something to eat when I heard the faint hissing coming from the cooling units. I hoped none of the compressors were going on the fritz again. Last time one of them burnt out, we were forced to pair up bodies in the remaining units. 
made me uncomfortable to do so, since it could be seen as lack of respect for the dead, but the alternative was to let them warm up and rot. If I were a family member, I'd much prefer seeing my loved one well-preserved rather than decomposed, even if that meant they were spooning another body for a few hours. I made my way to the cooling units, focusing on the rhythmic sound. It was coming from Unit 5. It sounded like a repeated cycle of compression and decompression. I opened the pod, touched the hand of the wall, and confirmed that it was still cold. As long as the refrigeration was still working, I saw no reason to make a fuss. I left a note for maintenance to check it out, and took a much overdue lunch break. The combination of a sore throat and bad taste in my mouth made it hard for me to eat, so I threw out my lunch after a few bites and spent the rest of my time off wandering the corridors. Once I returned to the office, I was pleasantly surprised that my note to maintenance was gone and that the noise had stopped. Maintenance rarely acted quickly, unless it was an emergency. It wasn't long before my shift was over and I was relieved of my duties. By then, the sun was rising, and the sky was pink as the small intestine of a freshly cut corpse. On my way home, I stopped by the pharmacy to buy cough drops in the hopes that the vile-tasting things would ease my aching throat. I did not even hesitate to pop three in my mouth at once, swallowing the numbing mixture of medicine and saliva for some short-lived relief. When I arrived at my modest townhouse, I placed my phone on the kitchen counter and took a seat in the living room to watch TV. My phone began buzzing, but nothing was getting me off that couch. The buzzing persisted for quite some time, but my ability to ignore it was boundless. Very few people knew my number, so it had to be work, and there was no way in hell I was answering while off duty. Before long, I was comfortably nestled under my blanket and ready to doze off. When I awoke, I practically had to gasp to get air into my lungs. My airway felt tight, constricted. I immediately threw a handful of cough drops in my mouth to ease the pain and try to reduce the inflammation. I rushed to the shower, enjoying the soothing, steaming air for longer than normal while I waited for the pain to subside. Choosing whether or not to call in sick was particularly difficult. My throat was the only thing causing me grief and I was almost out of sick days, since I'd used most nursing a chronic case of the Mondays. Not wanting to waste a sick day on actually being ill, I ultimately decided to go to work. On my way out, I checked my messages and saw that my co-worker had discovered one of the cooling unit doors wide open. The units were old, so I wasn't particularly surprised to hear that a latch had malfunctioned. When I arrived for the shift change, my colleague droned on and on about how the city funeral home had not yet picked up the day's shipment of bodies. I promised I'd take care of things. After my coworker left, I took a look at the list of acquisitions. There was a new body waiting for me in cooling unit 8. As I pulled it out, I was confronted with the second fatality of my doing. It was Brandon O'Neill, though I barely recognized him. For one, familiar face to appear on my table was odd. For a second acquaintance to make it there, it was unheard of. A chill ran down my spine, and I couldn't help wondering what was going on. 
get to the bottom of it. And fast. Brandon O'Neill, the med student I'd met barely two days ago, lay swollen on the coroner table. His face was puffy, barely recognizable. In fact, I only knew who it was thanks to his medical chart. He was the second casualty in what ended up to be a tragedy of entirely my doing. I examined him thoroughly for any sign of foul play, suspecting the third med student, Mr. Adrian Carter, was trying to get rid of the competition. There had to be a reason his fellow students had died barely a day apart. Despite my best effort to find clues, Mr. O'Neill's autopsy revealed nothing suspicious. The young man died of anaphylactic shock, an allergic reaction that caused his airway to constrict. I found several pieces of ground-up peanuts lodged in his swollen throat. According to his file, he'd been eating at a Thai restaurant and had failed to notice the nuts in his stir-fry. Unfortunate? Yes. Preventable? Absolutely. Suspicious? Definitely not. Swallowed hard. A taste of sweaty socks and sulfur still at the forefront of my mouth. Following procedure, I completed Mr. O'Neill's autopsy, placed the young man back in his cooling unit, and set up to write my report. A familiar sound caught my attention as I sat down to focus. The cooling units were hissing again. This time I could hear not one, but two distinct sources. What were the odds that two compressors were malfunctioning at the same time? My investigation ended before it even began when my office phone started ringing. Startled by the sound, I nearly fell off my chair. It was Ted from the funeral home, apologizing about failing to pick up last night's shipment. The funeral home was backed up and wouldn't be able to come by for another 36 hours. It was certainly not ideal, but it happened from time to time, and I was confident we had enough functioning cooling units to make do. I went back to work, trying my hardest to ignore the pain in my throat and the sound of the cooling units compressing and decompressing incessantly. Without realizing it, I found myself breathing along at the same tempo. As the sound began to slow, so too did the speed of my breathing. I'm not sure what would have happened had Dr. Chang not appeared at that moment. I suspect that had the sound stopped entirely, I might have forgotten to breathe. Thankfully, it didn't come to that, and Chang broke me out of my trance by storming into my office. A smile on my face, I greeted Dr. Chang courteously. He and I had a sort of childish camaraderie, wherein we frequently pulled pranks both together and against one another. His gloom-ridden features told me that this visit was not going to be a pleasant one. He was, as one would expect, quite distraught about the deaths of two residents. In lieu of comforting him, something I was not particularly adept at, I answered his questions regarding his students and shared my findings with him. Since the autopsy had revealed nothing suspicious, there wasn't much to tell. Dr. Chang, in turn, confided in me something quite disturbing. 
the third medical student, Mr. Carter, had not shown up for his shift. Intending to lighten the mood, I assured Dr. Chang that his student was not among the corpses in my morgue. Little did I know... He soon would be. As Dr. Chang left, I went back to work, updating my dossiers. As I took a stroll toward the filing cabinet near the cooling units, I began hearing that noise again. They immediately called maintenance, claiming there was an emergency. They arrived promptly and performed a thorough inspection. When they approached me, Waiting outside in the hallway, they warned me that cooling units 5 and 8 had been opened. They theorized I'd heard the sound of air escaping capsules. I, however, was certain I'd closed the doors properly this time. I began feeling quite nervous as the men left the room. Almost as soon as they were out of sight, the sounds started again. I ran to the cooling units and pushed against their doors. They were sealed shut. The sounds, I realized, were like that of someone breathing. Were Renee and Brandon's bodies somehow breathing inside of a vacuum-sealed chamber? The hairs on the back of my neck and arms rose, and I took a step back. From the corner of my eyes, I saw Coaling Unit 5's door slowly swing open. Son of a bitch! I screamed, my voice strong, despite the stinging pain in my throat. Though I tried to convince myself it was all just my imagination, triggered by misplaced guilt from the deaths of people I knew, I'm not afraid to admit that I ran out of the morgue with my tail between my legs. I did not speak to a soul, bolting straight for the washroom to splash cold water onto my face. Who on earth could be dumb enough to believe me anyway? Corpses don't breathe, and they certainly can't open doors. I took a deep breath, but as the air reached the back of my mouth, I felt a severely unpleasant sensation. Pulling my cheeks away, I looked into my mouth and nearly screamed. My molars had turned black and rotten, my throat resembled a warning label on a pack of cigarettes, and my tongue was almost gray. The nauseating scent of decomposition trickled out of my mouth and into my nose, making my eyes water. Maybe what I heard from the bodies was my imagination, but the physical changes in me were quite real. On my way back to the morgue, I picked up a few heavy-duty locks from the janitor's closet. It was just for my own peace of mind. Using the locks, I secured the cooling units. If nothing else, the doors wouldn't accidentally open anymore. Every single inhale and exhale brought with it a searing pain, as well as a strong sulfuric taste. I was getting really sick of the hard flavor. In the cold and deserted morgue, I paced back and forth, trying to snuff out every horrible theory coming to the forefront of my mind. Was it cancer? Had I been poisoned? Was I going insane? I was so lost in my thoughts that I failed to notice the new corpse waiting for me on the operating table until a movement caught my eye. I saw its chest rise. 
was subtle, but I was sure of it. Was Dr. Chang playing a cruel joke? No. I hadn't told anyone about my fears. How could he have known? I approached the body hesitantly. As my heart throbbed desperately against the walls of my chest, I pulled back the white sheet that was draped over the body. There, on my table, lay Adrian Carter, the last of the med students. My legs felt weak as I watched his corpse in disbelief. One death? Unfortunate. Two deaths? Suspicious. Three deaths? There was no way to rationalize how three medical residents had perished all within the span of a few days. My trembling fingers took hold of Mr. Carter's chart and my eyes darted through it, reading only the key words. Depression, stress, suicide, hanging. His family thought he'd done himself in because med school had proven to be too stressful. It wasn't unusual for residents to get a little depressed, and I could almost buy the story if not for one crucial detail. Look. Adrian's face. His eyes, muscles, twisted in absolute terror. It wasn't the look of pain and regret you sometimes see when people hang themselves. It wasn't the peaceful acceptance of one's fate. No. It was a look of primal fear that I had never seen on anyone before. An emotion so raw that I could practically feel it by proxy. It sent chills down my spine and I had to throw a sheet over his face to be able to continue my work, though I wish I hadn't. The sheet moved. I screamed, but my throat was so tight that the sound could barely make it through. Quickly, without even completing the autopsy, I rolled Adrian's body into one of the cooling units and locked him in there. I could hear all three of them breathing from the other side. They were breathing a dead man's final breath, a breath that we had stolen. It was all my fault. I had done this to them. I'd killed each and every one of those young medical students, all for a cheap laugh. Their blood was on my hands. I cursed them. I cursed myself. They continued breathing even as I ran out of the room. I could hear the echoes of their deep exhales as I frantically ran to my car and drove home, breaking the speed limit. What did it matter if I was arrested? I was going to die soon anyways. So here I am. Writing this to you. Consider this a mea culpa, if you will. Though not directly by my hands, I caused the deaths of three young medical students and have cursed myself to the same fate. I'm afraid I'm not long for this world. I can feel a lump in my throat now. My autopsy will probably reveal a tumor of some sort. 
I could keep quiet. I could preserve my legacy, but for my own peace of mind, I... I couldn't leave without revealing the truth. I'm sorry. To the loving families of Renee Jackson, Brandon O'Neill, and Adrian Carter. I'm so terribly, terribly sorry. My name is Mike, and this message goes out to all who happen to follow me online. In my time here on Reddit, I've enjoyed countless ghost stories about haunted houses and so forth. That's all they ever were, though. Just stories. My mother passed away recently, and while some of my relatives and I were cleaning out her attic, I came across my old journal and I... I wish I hadn't. What happened all those years ago? It all came flooding back through the dusty, weathered pages of an old notebook. The memories of so long ago were dead and buried, and I would have preferred they stay that way. It was around 20 years ago now. I was only a summer away from putting the whole North American landmass between me and my podunk little town. Starlight Resorts, a quaint hotel in my town popular with honeymooners looking for a romantic getaway and an old-timey colonial experience was the perfect opportunity for me to save up the last little bit of money I could before school started. I primarily worked at the front desk for the night shift. Getting a job there was a breeze, apart from a couple of regulars. Staff changed frequently. Unfortunately, being short-staffed so often... Getting a job there was a breeze. Apart from a couple of regulars, the staff changed frequently. Unfortunately, being short-staffed so often required me to step outside of my immediate duties at times. I do remember there was a security guard who quit after only a day. It has been said that a lot of people who have tried to work there in the past have never gone more than four or five days without quitting. Little did I know that I'd soon find out why. Anyway, this is where my journal comes into play. In my day, we didn't hop on our cell phones and pointlessly update the world on every mundane aspect of our lives. If you were working late and you were bored, you had a couple of options. A. Be a normal human and socialize with your coworkers. B. Get a deck of cards and kick your own ass in a game of solitaire. Or C. Make your own entertainment, which in my case was journaling. In high school, English was my best subject, and I'd planned on majoring in it in college to either go into teaching or journalism or something of the sort, so I was no stranger to jotting down my thoughts and feelings. At this point in my life, writing came as a second nature, and it was the best therapy that money didn't have to buy. A notebook doesn't lie or misinterpret. It only presents your thoughts, feelings, and experiences as you dictate them. I used to write, and sometimes even just doodle if it ever got slow enough where I wasn't constantly busy. I knew the hotel's supposed haunting and figured it might be fun to jot down some notes if I ever saw or felt anything out of the ordinary. At the time, the most I ever thought was going to come from it were a few instances of cold drafts and some flickering lights. Attached below was a previously 
unobserved glimpse into the nightmares I experienced while working at the resort. It was not unusual for me to jot things down at least twice a night, once before I started a shift and once more after I got on break. To make things easier to read, I've split my writings into two separate parts per entry. June 21st, 1999. Who would have thought I'd wind up here in the Starlight Hotel? I'm sitting in the lobby as I write this. The history of this place still lives on through the atmosphere here, floating through the musty air and embedded in the handcrafted mahogany furniture. And it seems like the stories about this place go back as far as the hotel itself. Kevin Makinson from Gym Class used to always talk about the lady in red. A long time ago, farther and farther back, depending on who you ask, a bride committed suicide the night of her wedding. The story goes that a young bride having her wedding here in the reception lounge jumped off the top floor of the hotel after discovering her new husband was having an affair. Legend has it, she can still be seen wandering the top floor all hours of the night, her face and dress covered in blood and broken bones from the impact of the fall. I guess that's where the red comes from. <sighs> to be a young little freshman again. It seems like every town has their own story about a ghost bride. Can't believe people still fall for that one anymore. It does have me thinking, though. All these rumors floating around about this place, even if they are fake stories themselves have to be based on something. Maybe there's no ghost, but you never know. Affairs destroy marriages every day. And as unfortunate as it is, it's not unheard of for someone to fall out of a window or something like that. Behind every legend could be a little piece of this place's history. Piecing together the secrets of the Starlight Hotel might be fun. Well, that must take off for now. My shift is starting, and Mr. Gilbert, the boss, needs me. June 21st, continued. Okay, so... That was odd. The time is 12.38 a.m. It was about 20 minutes ago when this first happened, but... This is the first moment's reprieve I've gotten. I want to get this out while it's fresh in my mind as can be. I was delivering some miscellaneous things to a couple of rooms on the top floor. It was just my luck that the elevator happens to be out of service, so I've been getting my exercise in the access stairwell. Cold, hard metal from the hand railing was at war with fire burning in my lungs from the physical activity. I'd reached the top floor and headed for the door when a thunderous bang sent me soaring out of my skin. On the opposite end of the door, gazing through the door's window, looking square at me, was an unbelievably whitish young woman. Her face was shrouded in crimson, sandy blood. She screeched in pain. Open the door! Get in here now! Blood on her hands writhed as she slammed on the door, commanding my attention. I don't know what came over me, but the next thing I knew, my hand was hugging the handle and welcoming her into my space. She clutched onto me and started smearing blood all over my clothes as she whimpered in my ear. Where the hell have you been? Frozen in fear and unable to answer, a second question came forth. Are these my towels? It was then that I remembered room 1307's request, one of the reasons I'd been sent up there in the first place. Damn it, the woman complained. It's been ten minutes now. 
She grasped a stack of towels and pressed them against her nose. The poor woman was taking a bath and went to wash her hair and smashed her face on the faucet. Talk about a jolt to the system. That was an image I won't soon forget. I'm finally back at the front desk now. It took forever to talk to the woman and fill out the incident report. Okay, so it wasn't the lady in red, but it was a lady in red. Does that count for anything? June 22nd. Night 2, here's to you. And here's to an incident-free night. No more bloody noses from here on out. So far things have been quiet. Uh, quieter, anyway. I have company tonight. Someone else is on duty with me. Her name is Vivian. I could have used her help last night, but she mentioned something about her kid being sick with a cold. Her son, I think. And not being able to get to a babysitter. Should have heard Mr. Gilbert when she showed up. I don't know how this chick put up with this abuse. It's one thing to reprimand an employee for being late or not calling into work, but he was flat out berating her and bellowing at her like she was a small child. He kept going on about how she needed to take accountability, that she was still just a child with a child of her own. She must really need this job if she's putting up with that garbage. Here she comes now. She must have been in the bathroom for half an hour. I think she was crying. Anyway, still nothing crazy to report tonight. At least nothing as crazy as last night. It's probably silly for me to even bring this up, but I just can't get it out of my mind. I was ready to write the whole thing off myself until guests started calling in and complaining. It sounded like... moaning. I noticed it earlier when I was running some things up to the second floor. Looking at the manifesto and judging by the rooms calling in, I would say it's coming from room 209. It's the only room on the floor that hasn't called complaining. The only problem is room 209 hasn't been occupied in weeks, according to the records. There's a lot of secrets in room 209. That phrase is giving me chills right now. That one used to spread like the plague up and down my school's cafeteria. The story would be almost completely different by the time it made its way around the room, though. When I saw that room 209 was empty, my heart nearly sank as the various stories came flooding back to me. The sound coming from the room right now, though, reminds me of one particular tale. It was the early 1900s. A young woman from... A multitude of places, depending on who you hear the story from, immigrated to America to start a life of freedom and opportunity with her sweetheart. The significant other came over first and got a job in a steel mill to pay for her passage over. After arriving here and settling in room 209, she learned that he was tragically killed when a fire broke out at the mill. Upon learning of his death, the woman became despondent and barricaded herself in the room. Hotel staff tried everything they could, but were unable to enter the room. For ten whole days, the woman sat in the room, bawling her eyes out, until finally succumbing to starvation and dehydration. When the staff finally managed to get through the door, her lifeless body was discovered on the bed. She was still clutching a pillow to her chest. 
this what I'm hearing right now? The mournful sobs of a grieving widow? Leave it to Vivian to head off to the bathroom again right now. I'd give up my week's paycheck to have anyone else go up there with me and check it out. I don't want to go alone. When housekeeping goes in there to just clean the room, they do it in shifts. Never go alone. And they're always in and out. No messing around. What am I going to do? I'm just one man. The new guy. Fortunately, I'm not really in any position to say no. Here goes nothing. I'll have to be as quick as the maids. With any luck, I should be back before the ink on the paper dries. June 22nd. Continued. Damn it. I knew I shouldn't have gone up there. What am I going to do now? I've never dealt with something like this before. The room was completely emaciated. How the hell could that have happened? No one said anything, not about this. No one should go back into room 209. I got water all over my damn shoes, and I liked this pair. Stupid, busted pipe. I'm grateful that the damage was minimal, at least. Mr. Gilbert had me seal up the room. No one else on the floor reported any issues, and no water got into anyone else's room. That's the good news. Mr. Gilbert says that he's going to get some guys to handle it tomorrow. So, I guess I didn't hear the cries of a grieving widow after all, just the wailing of a busted water pipe. Perhaps there are a lot of secrets in room 209, but that'll have to wait until the room is repaired again. June 23rd. What fresh hell awaits me tonight? This has been the most stressful couple of days I've ever had. I guess somebody up there is making me work hard for my money. So far tonight has been gleefully uneventful, thank God. Maybe I can rest easy and just do an average night's work, knock on wood. Vivian came in a little late tonight, but I don't think Mr. Gilbert noticed this time. When I went to clock in, he reeked of booze. And he wasn't too friendly tonight either. When I told him I was there, he just grunted, get to work, and went back to hitting the bottle. I guess managing a hotel isn't an easy business. It takes a mental toll on you. I feel bad for the guy, but he could try and be a little more friendly. Off to work I go, for now. June 23rd. Continued. Break time. And what a wonderful break time it is. I finally got to do what my original job description entails. Sit at the front desk and answer the phone. I think I'm a little bored tonight. There's no excitement. I managed to get in more than a few words with Vivian tonight. She's pretty rad chick once you get to know her. She's a little quiet at first, but all in all, a very good listener. The funny thing is, we went to the same school, but she's a little older than me. Maybe about four, four and a half years. I think maybe she just graduated before I got there. I figured maybe I would ask her what she's heard about the place. It didn't quite go as well as I hoped, though. She just said she wasn't much for ghost stories and didn't go into that sort of thing. I figured it might be better to just change the subject. Without changing, I just blurted out the first thing that entered my mind. How about Mr. Gilbert, huh? He can be a real hard-ass sometimes. The air in the room went from warm and inviting to tense and chilly. 
She glanced down at the floor. What are you going to do? Bosses are crap, am I right? True, I answered back. But I heard the way he speaks to you. Why do you put up with it? If someone gave me crap for taking care of my kid, that would be it. Where else am I going to go? I'm stuck here. That's all she said, just like that. No feeling in her voice. I feel so bad for this poor girl. I can't imagine feeling trapped like that with no way out. It must be hell. There must be something else you can do, I asserted. Why don't you just quit? Would you help me? I didn't quite understand what she meant. Would you help me get out of here? Go find a better place? Uh, okay. Isn't this something you can do personally, though? Suddenly, Mr. Gilbert was coming back from wherever he was. That was the end of that. She shushed me and took off for the restroom. She didn't like to be in the same room with him if she could help it. I was surprised he didn't ask what I was up to by myself. He just asked if everything was okay and went back to whatever he was doing. He's in the back office right now. I don't think he was feeling too well. All his drinking must have finally hit him hard. I haven't heard a peep from him. June 24th. That was fun while it lasted, but wasn't meant to be, I suppose. I guess asking for multiple nights in a row of unvarying work was too much to hope for. Anything that can go wrong has. I don't know about ghosts. I've yet to see one, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if there was a hex on this place. Maybe the rumors from school got it all wrong. This place is cursed, not haunted. The kicker is that the newlywed couple came running out of the elevator in hysterics. The man was dressed like the sorriest excuse of a police officer I've ever seen, and the woman had on a practically see-through nightgown and undergarments of the edible variety. They claimed they were sleeping when the wife slipped out of bed. Her wrists were swollen like gnawed-up chewing gum, and her eye was black as a moonless night. I highly doubt anyone goes to sleep dressed like they were, and who among us isn't 80 years old bruises up like that from falling a few inches out of the bed. Mr. Gilbert barked at me to get upstairs and check out the room as if Vivian and I didn't have enough on our plates. She was busy with the real glamorous work, cleaning up after someone who came in drunk off their ass and couldn't make it to the bathroom. When the newlywed couple and I made it to their room, it was just as I thought. An alien from outer space could deduce that no one had been asleep in this room. The bed looked like a tornado hit it. The sheets were wet and stained by the complimentary bottle of champagne given out to the newly arrived happy couples, and a small dent lay embedded in the ceiling with bits of plaster trickling down. My guess was from popping the cork. I sighed as I held out my clipboard and started filling out the incident report. Okay, I asked. Do you guys want to tell me one more time what happened here? I told you we were, yeah, I know, sleeping, I interjected as I finished feeling out the report. Thanks for giving us your contact information. A hotel representative will be in touch with you guys in a couple of days. I turned out of the room and didn't look back. Who knows what I might have seen had I looked more thoroughly. After winding around a few turns of the cold, narrow, dimly lit hallway, I came upon the elevator. 
An odd mixture of anxiety and melancholy permeated the air as I waited for the ride down. It was hard to explain, but it was like someone was waiting with me for the elevator, like a presence that just wanted company and didn't want to be alone. It didn't feel threatening, but it would have creeped me out less if they tried to give me some sort of sign instead of just being present. I recoiled in shock when the long-standing elevator door skidded open. Boo! Vivian sprang forward from the inside and took a small, calculated step toward me. This wearisome attempt at playfulness was uncalled for. There's a time and place for this sort of thing, and I'd rather not have the daylight scared out of me in the middle of a busy shift. Jeez, Vivian, you scared me half to death, I protested. I've been looking for you. What's going on? (sighs) What hasn't been going on, I complained. I just got through with another incident report. How about you? How are things downstairs? That's actually what I wanted to ask you, she explained. Do you know where Mr. Gilbert is? I was looking all over for him. Phones were ringing in the lobby and... Neither you or him were there. (sighs) Great. She just left the phones ringing to come find me. Mr. Gilbert was going to be pissed. As much as I didn't like his personality sometimes, I can kind of understand where his hostility comes from. Vivian is a great chick, but she has a real knack for not getting anything accomplished. I don't know. He told me to come up here and I've been busy dealing with the wacky honeymooners from hell ever since. Massaged my weary, weighty eyelids and thought harder. I think he was heading toward the kitchen, last I heard. I think a chef cut their finger on a knife or something, and now they've got a big problem. This night has been hell. She looked me dead square in the face. It was the first time we locked eyes. I never noticed how beautiful they were before, like a painting... One that had faded over the years and didn't have that look anymore. These were the eyes of an old soul. You're right, she said. I know. Now we gotta get back downstairs before Mr. Gilbert has it in for both of us. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, you were right before. It's time I go somewhere else. Find some place better. It's time he knows. She couldn't possibly be serious. She had to pick tonight of all nights to quit. Damn it, I'm sorry, but this time I'm with Mr. Gilbert. Take some responsibility and just don't quit and leave everyone else hanging. What was she thinking? June 24th, continued. (sighs) Vivian's gone now. Haven't seen her since the elevator. I guess she left. Haven't seen Mr. Gilbert... For a while. I checked the kitchen and maybe he still hasn't wrapped things up over there. The light was on and the freezer was open, a crack, but that's about it. I closed up and shut everything down in there for him. He'd kill me if I let the food go bad if he had the energy to after killing Vivian for her abrupt exit. On one hand, I am pissed that she just took off and left me, but on the other hand, I'm kind of glad I inspired her to move on in life. Well, another day, another dollar. I miss you, Vivian. It was nice getting to know you. June 25th. Some slight background information. This particular entry had to be logged on separate paper when I originally hand wrote it. After you read it, you'll understand why.
God. What have I done? There was no one there. I didn't hear anything. Not a peep. How didn't I see anything? It was a horrible accident. I showed up to work today, and a different manager was there. Mr. Gilbert was found dead this morning, frozen to death after being locked in the freezer. I've been at the police station from 9 o'clock this morning until about 8.30 p.m. Since I was the only one at the front desk on duty when it happened, they had a flurry of questions for me. A note was found left behind at the hotel addressed to me. I must have never seen it last night. To this very day, the note she left behind still gives me chills, no pun intended. The original note was kept for evidence. I'm grateful that I had the foresight to make a copy of it before it was taken away from me. It read, There once was a woman trapped in a freezer. Ignoring her pleas, he did not release her. Growing colder and colder, she could see her breath and died a slow and icy death. Despite his crime of ignorance, he had no shame. He will only learn if his fate is the same. The sins of the father must be repaid. Do your research and you will find your proof, convicting the one who was ever aloof. You looked upon my situation with much pity, and now i found a way for you to help me. Trust what I say, and do not bat an eye. This man is certainly not a good guy. You must strike now. It is prime time. Hurry and return to the scene of the crime. There is only so much I can do, and the rest is to fall upon you. He will beg and plead and scream and shout, but you mustn't ever let him out. Congratulations, Mike. You spent your time here investigating legends. Now you have the horror of being a part of a real one. Thanks for sticking around as long as you did. No one else ever would. Vivian Gilbert. That was the first time I'd ever heard her last name. I had no clue she was Mr. Gilbert's daughter. What the police told me next really threw me for a loop. They were insistent that the note couldn't have come from her because she'd been dead for the previous ten years at the time. She and her unborn baby boy froze to death. After she wandered, and I used the term wandered loosely, into the freezer. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. She couldn't have been dead. I'm 99% sure I heard Mr. Gilbert talking to her. It was just all a bad dream. It had to be, but... I wasn't waking up. The police took handwriting samples and were able to determine that it wasn't me who wrote the note. So, there was someone else in the hotel lobby beside me. Who was it really, though? End of journal entries. I never returned to work after that. The police interviewed everyone they possibly could. Other hotel guests, staff members from other shifts, but nothing ever panned out. Most of the security footage was mysteriously never captured from that evening. Just a small portion of Mr. Gilbert staggering into the freezer and me nonchalantly closing it up. His death would go on to be ruled accidental, and I would be cleared of any wrongdoing. Some of the security footage from the other nights would go on to be reviewed, but never revealed anything new. I could always be seen talking to someone who was just out of frame with the camera. 
case you're wondering, I did look her up as the note suggested. The first thing that the computer spit back out at me was an old news article about a young pregnant woman found dead after a suspicious accident in the Starlight Hotel. There was even a picture attached. Distressing as it may be, I recognized the person in the photo all too well. And I think I inadvertently helped her condemn her father to the same fate that she had suffered by his hand. I want to give a big, big thank you to all of our patrons and members. Absent Alice, Amethyst, Amet, Ann Barry, Bubbly Panda, Caroline, Christina Smith, C.T., Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, Alice G., Frankie Brockway, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Fanning, Kelly Sprong, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New Ongoing 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. And thank you to everyone who shows up, watches the video, leaves a like, leaves a comment. It really helps out, and I really, really appreciate it. Hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, take care of yourself.